Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Father God, we have prayed sincerely that you would take our lives and that you would use them, that our lives would be wholly dedicated to you. And Father, we pray that as we listen to your word this evening, we would understand what stops us in this regard and that we would be humble before your words to do what you say, that we would truly surrender our lives to you. And Father, we pray this through Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, conflict is the stuff of life. Now just think about it. Have you read a novel that didn't have conflict in it? If a writer writes a novel and there's no sort of squabble or tragedy within it, we lose interest and we'll put the book down. Now, I watched a film on Friday night and there was conflict at the heart of it. That's what drove the film through. But then there was also the conflict between the father and the daughter. There was conflict between the criminals, with one criminal having conflict with another criminal. There was conflict all the way through it. And when you think about it, conflict becomes the stuff of stories because conflict is the stuff of life. Surely you're familiar with fights and quarrels, are you not? Surely you have them at home. Husband and wife having an argument over trivial matters, maybe, where you squeeze the toothpaste from, how you stack the dishwasher. Or maybe it's between siblings as you fight and you squabble over various different things. You see it at school where people fall out with each other. You've probably experienced it at uni. You know, the kind of thing, Ben and Dan are not talking to each other at the moment, and let's keep them apart because it will be fireworks if they get together. You see it as work, as you're drawn into one side or the other, as they tell you again what Janice has done this time. It happens in church congregations. It happens between friends. It happens between lovers. It happens between those who are not friends. It happens between Christians and those who are not Christians. It happens between old people and young people. It even happens as babies sit together and fight over their toys. Do you recognize it? Surely you recognize the experience of conflict. It's an extremely common experience. Now, can I ask, when was the last time you had a fight or a quarrel with someone? Now, have you had a row today? A squabble this week? Have you had a dispute this month? Think back to the last one that you've had. Think back to the the fight or the quarrel that you had last and ask James's question in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What caused that fight or quarrel? You see, if we answer that, we'll see what to do about them. Now, why did you have that disagreement at home? What caused the fight at work? What caused the quarrel at school? What caused your dispute at uni? And what's the answer? I guess for many of us, the answer would be something along the lines of, if so-and-so wasn't so impossible. If Fiona hadn't said that to me, then I would have never got angry at her. If my dad let me go away for that week, I would have never had to fight with him. If my boss wasn't just so unreasonable. I've told Jim a hundred times how to do that job and he still does it wrong. If that person wasn't so impossible, 
But as you read on in James, you see that James identifies the source of the problem in a very different place. Did you pick it up as we read? See how verse 1 goes. James says, you are the problem. Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You are the problem, says James. Your desires raging inside of you are the problem. The fights and quarrels that happen have you at their center. They're caused by the desires you have. Now, those desires are selfish, indulgent passions that you have. Desires that are for our own pleasure and our own gratification. Things that are for us. Things that we want. Now, James goes on to explain. And let me read that to you in verse 2. I've changed the punctuation slightly to make it clearer. It's how the ESV translates it as well. James makes two parallel statements in verse 2, if you, if you look and follow along. You want something, but don't get it, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Do you see the movement? You have an internal desire for something. You want it, you covet it, but you don't get it. And then there is an obvious outcome. You kill or you quarrel and fight. See, when I want something and I don't get it, I get frustrated at that. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but I've never killed anyone when that's happened. But do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5? You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in, the danger, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Maybe consider an example. Consider the experience of children, of um, parents putting children to bed. You know, they tuck them into the bed and then they get back downstairs and they're just sitting down. The TV has just been put on when they start to hear the noise from upstairs. The children are out of bed, they're playing, there's a squabble going on. How do the parents react? And how did you react in that situation? Do you know, do you feel that sense of frustration rising? I've clocked off being a parent. It's nine o'clock and I stopped at 8.30. What right have they got to be back up now? And boy, do they get a tongue lashing when you get up there. What caused that desire, that fight? Was it not the desire raging in you for me time? I've stopped being a parent now. Now's the time for me. You see, we don't get our way, and so the frustration rises, and so we fight and we quarrel with people. But James goes on, and I think he's being a bit ironic at the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you don't get your selfish, indulgent desires, when that anger rises within you, do you think to pray? Well, of course you don't, do you? Because you know full well that God won't grant those kind of selfish desires to you. Now, verse 3 makes it clear for those of us who think we might ask God for those things. See what he says there? When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If you ask for those kind of selfish desires to be granted, then you're asking wickedly. 
You're asking with wrong motives. Now, I pray that I don't have to be a parent at nine o'clock in the evening. It's a selfish thing to pray. God's not going to answer that prayer. You see, your selfish, indulgent desires are opposed to the will of God. The desires that God has for us to love other people and have other people at the center, not ourselves. Can you see just how ugly human wisdom is? How ugly self-indulgent desires are? What they do to our relationships with each other? Well, look what they do for our relationship with God in verse 4. If our self-indulgent desires make us murder each other, it makes us adulterers with respect to God. You're being unfaithful to God. See how strongly James puts it in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you know the pleasures of the world are appealing? The enjoyment that money can bring, the thrill that power can give, the satisfaction that prestige can bestow the gratification that a good grade can confer, the pleasure that an easy life gives. And we must not think that those kind of things are not attractive to us. And when we start to experience those things, our love for God can start to wane. You know, it's as if a prostitute is wooing you away from God. As an unfaithful husband is wooed to another, so you are being wooed away from God to the pleasures that your heart longs for. And you need to see that those desires, those indulgent, selfish desires that you have, are shaped by worldly wisdom. That's what James was speaking of last week as we looked at the end of chapter 3. And he said that that worldly wisdom produced envy and selfish desires, that worldly wisdom was earthly and spiritual and from the devil. You cannot serve two masters. You can either serve God or you can follow your selfish, indulgent desires. And verse 5 shows why John uses, James uses such strong language here. You see the translators had a hard time with this verse. When you look down to the footnote, you'll see that there are two other options of how to translate it. In my opinion, the best one's the one at the end of the footnote. And so it goes like this. Or do you think that the Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us longs jealousy. You see, God has caused his spirit to live inside you, Christians, here tonight. And that spirit jealously longs for you. He jealously longs for you. He wants and he desires for you to live his way. In the same way that a husband might jealously desire that his wife would be faithful to him. So God's spirit desires that we are faithful to him. God desires our total obedience. And so when we are drawn away from God to our own selfish desires, then we are committing adultery with him. Now, it could be quite crushing, couldn't it, to think of God being this person who desires this total obedience from us. An impossible burden to bear. How could we live up to that kind of expectation and it's that, for that reason why the next verse is so very wonderful. We've read it already this evening. You see, God doesn't stand over and just demand something from you. He gives us all we need. You see what it says in verse 6 again? 
but he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. He is like a husband who not only desires faithfulness from his wife, but lavishes love on her. A husband who gives her all she needs to remain faithful. You see, God gives us all we need to be obedient to him. God is as gracious as he is holy. He demands obedience, but supplies all the grace that we need to meet his holy demand. You know, I hope that you feel convicted that following your selfish desires is wicked. Following worldly wisdom is terrible. Feel that, but don't despair. God gives more grace. Our God gives everything that we need to follow him. And so James goes on to expose what the real issue is for us, the, the real issue is for us, and what we should do about it. Here's the issue. The issue is pride. A particularly ugly pride which will say, my desires are more important than God. My desires are more important than what God wants. Listen to what James says as he quotes Scripture from verse, in verse 6. This is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, if you think your wisdom is greater than God's, then can I say you're being arrogantly proud? You see, the issue is this. Are your self-indulgent desires so important that you will reject the grace of God? Do you think the fulfillment of your own desires is so vital that you will stand against God? How foolish that would be. God opposes the proud. And so are you going to be humble and accept the grace which God gives us? Are you going to stop being so proud and humbly accept that God gives grace? Stop standing against him. Are you willing this evening to admit that you are wrong and that you need help? You see, when you humble yourself in this way, you find grace. You find all the grace you need. And James then goes on to tell us two ways in which we need to change. First, we need to change with respect to God. You see how James goes on in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, the first thing is to submit yourselves to God. Submit everything to God. Let your selfish, indulgent desires go and submit to the will of God. That's what James has been calling us to do all through this book. He said that we should be listening to what God says and then doing it. It will mean that every area of your life will be seen in faith working itself out in deeds. It will mean that we are not playing favorites with people. It will mean that we will be speaking rightly to people. Our outlook will be to have God's wisdom central. And when the conflicts and when we feel our desires coming into conflict with that, then we will surrender and submit. If you think about the first hearers of this letter, they were facing many real persecutions and trials for their faith. If they are living according to worldly wisdom, what's their attitude going to be to those? Well, they're not going to do what James says in chapter 1, are they, and rejoice to face trials. They've had to have their vision reset yet again to remember that God desires for them to be mature complete, not lacking anything. 
And to do that, they need to live according to God's wisdom, to submit to him. It would be a good question to ask, what does a life like that look like? Now, you could think of it a bit like marriage. Now, when I got married, I knew enough about Kirsty to knew that I wanted to commit to loving her and spending my life with her. Uh, Yet, I didn't know everything about her. I didn't know everything that uh, would please her. Now, I didn't know, for example, that she liked to drink milk mixed with boiling water. And even when I did find that out, I didn't know the the ratios of milk to boiling water that that had. There were things I had to learn. And it's similar as Christians for us. We know enough to think, I want to commit my life to God when when I become a Christian. I know that Jesus has died for me. I want to make him my Lord and live for him. And yet we don't necessarily know everything that that will look like. And as we grow as Christians, we see more of what that will mean. We come to understand what it will look like to make him king and to love him more and to serve him. And the way that we do that is through the Bible. It's how God speaks to us so that we might know his wisdom, so we might understand what he says. You see, the Bible tells us what God is like. It shows us what his wisdom is. It reveals how we are to live. It trains us in righteousness. It's the map which guides us along the right path in life. And when we start to go off track, it brings us back onto the track. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness. The question is, do we think we know better than God? Are we willing to submit to that? To surrender our desires to what God wants? You see, we can often be double-minded. We think that at times we know better than God. Or that I will follow my ways at this time and God's at another time. And it's easy to see why we might do that. Because the devil is someone who doesn't want us to follow God's will. And he constantly lies about God to us. He was a liar from the beginning. He deceived Adam and Eve. And he will deceive us if if he gets the chance. Do you remember he said to Adam and Eve, no, God is not good. He just wants to oppress you. He lied to you. And so when we think about submitting to God, then he says the same things to us. God is not really good. He doesn't really give grace. He just wants to oppress you. But he was a liar then and he's a liar now. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Determine to change your mind and not listen to the devil any longer. It's interesting, isn't it, how James puts it here. Resist the devil and he will flee to you, flee from you. We can sometimes fall into the error of thinking the devil is powerful and strong and a force that we can't really stand up against. But James simply says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can imagine in the playground, if the bully in the playground came up to you, and if you knew all you had to do was say no and he would run away, then you would do that. Well, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yes, the devil is persistent, but he is defeated. You can resist and he will flee from you. And in doing that, you will come near to God and he will come near to you. It's wonderful, really, isn't it? God is a God of great grace. God gives more grace. And that's the fundamental change that we need to make. We need to humble ourselves before God. 
And we need to think of ourselves as his and his alone and resist the devil. And without that change, everything else is fruitless. We can't just come up with a list of, I must try harder in this area or that area. It's like sweeping everything under the carpet. The first thing we must do is submit our lives to God. But James then secondly says, once you've done that, once you've humbled yourselves before God, it will also involve change in us. Here he goes on in verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's saying, clean up your act. God has prepared good works for you to do. Live in those and stop following your worldly wisdom. It's interesting, isn't it? He calls them double-minded again, that mindset that which thinks in some circumstances I know better than God, or in some company I will follow their wisdom and in other companies I'll follow God's. The mindset which says I will follow God when it matches up to my own wisdom and logic. When it coheres with what I think. Stop being so double-minded, says James. Purify your heart and live wholeheartedly for God. You cannot be a half-hearted Christian. No, you must live wholeheartedly. And as a first step, you will then mourn over your sinfulness. If you look how James goes on in verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's quite strong stuff, isn't it? Now, have you ever felt, have you ever seen your sin as so serious as it's something that you would grieve over? Such an intense feeling of sadness that you would mourn, that you would wail. So we find it very easy to laugh at times, don't we? And we speak about our sinfulness and we can laugh at it to something funny. Recently I was discussing with a group of people about people who use their mobile phones during services and play games during the talks and things that are happening at the services. And then someone admitted in the group that they did that and we all laughed. You see, there's a time when we need to stop laughing when we need to be serious about what we have done before God. Now, of course, the the Christian faith is joyful. It does bring us great joy. But there is a seriousness which would turn our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. There's something serious about realizing God exists. Something serious about realizing that our sinfulness was what caused the Lord Jesus to come and go to the cross and die for us. Now, have you considered that, that Christ went to the cross because of your selfish, self-indulgent desires which pitted you against God? You see, we need to mourn when we realize that our selfish and sinful, indulgent desires have destroyed relationships. We grieve when we see that our selfish, worldly desires put us in opposition to God. And it's right to wail over them. And as we humble ourselves and as we admit our sinfulness, then we will find grace again. You see, James finishes this little section in verse 10 in a wonderful way. Do you see what he says? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, as I've been preparing this week, there's been things which God has been challenging me strongly about. 
I've seen more clearly this week, I think, my own selfish, sinful, indulgent desires. I've seen their destructiveness when I've been able to see what they, are, what they do. I've seen that they are shaped by a worldly wisdom which is opposed to God. I've seen that they make me an adulterer when I follow them. And I'm sure there's things that you are beginning to see in your own life which would fit that category. And I pray that you'll be able to start dealing with them. And the first way, and the first step to do that is to humble yourselves. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to come before God in prayer and in confession. In a moment, Joel will lead us in the confession that's printed on your sheet. But as, as we prepare for that, why don't you take a few moments to consider just in quiet your own life. Uh, to mourn over those uh, selfish indulgent desires which have pitted us against others and against God. And then let's humble ourselves to come before God in prayer.